0: I'd like to acknowledge that this broadcast is coming to you from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A quick heads up, this episode contains some pretty heavy discussions around mental illness. If that brings anything to the surface for you or you just need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. We also talk about gambling in this episode. If that's something that you need help with, you can always call Gambling Help New South Wales at one 858 858 Out of Out
1: of the box. Out of the box. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box. With Mia Hull on FBI Radio.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning in. My name is Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box. This show is live to air midday through to 1pm on FBI radio and of course available to stream on the podcast at your convenience. I sit down with one person each week and dive into stories from their life and the songs that have soundtracked them. In order to make that happen, hours of work go into preparing this show every week. I have a team of producers chasing down potential guests, researching stories and helping shape each episode. It's a real labor of love. And I think everyone who works on out of the box has at some point imagined what their episode might sound like if they were a guest today, I'm joined by someone who's definitely thought about this episode before Bree Jones has been the executive producer of out of the box for about two and a half years. She plays a huge role in how this show sounds and a huge role in helping me to host it. And I'm sad to say that this is the last episode of Out of the Box to be infused with her magic because she's leaving. Before that happens, we're pulling back the curtain and celebrating Brie and her stories and her record collection. Thanks for jumping on the show today, (laughs) Brie. Thank you for having me, Mia. So it turns out you've got a whole
1: life outside of FBI. (laughs) I do, I actually <laughs> do. Yeah, sometimes I forget too, so it's okay. <laughs> where does it start? Well, my life started in a place called Aotearoa, which is also known as New Zealand, um, in a place called Porirua in Wellington. And so, yeah, that's where everything began for me.
0: Are your parents from New Zealand as well?
1: Yes, they are. What were
0: they doing for work when you were born?
1: um so there's a story there about my dad um I was a third kid and um my dad was a painter but he also really really liked playing cards and when I was born he was doing really quite well and like I think the week before or something like that he just one, another person's business in a game of cards. And then, like, on the day that I was born, he was really, like, preoccupied with a horse race that was going on. Um, and so when, like, the people came to give him the documents to sign for my, for my birth, there was a section that says, like, you know, father's occupation. Um, and he decided to write Gambler. As a bit of a joke. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) What kind of bets are you placing if you consider that to be an occupation? If you've won a business, (laughs) what kind of stuff is he putting on the line?
1: Um, Well, he ended up putting up quite a few things on the line. So, like, from there he – so the business he won was an indoor sports centre. And he ended up, like – the reason he came to Australia was because he – For some reason, like he really enjoyed running an indoor sports centre. And then he was just like, had this whimsical idea of like, I'm going to move to Sydney and start an indoor sports centre in Western Sydney. Um, And my mum was like, um, you know, with three kids going like, okay. Um, And he did that. And then my two oldest sisters moved over to Australia. And um, it was just like most of my childhood that I remember was just me and my mum and our dog in New Zealand.
0: What was your mum doing for work in New Zealand?
1: Well, she was basically a stay-at-home mum, but she also was a volunteer at a um, dog obedience club. She ended up being president for a little while. And so we spent, like most of my childhood in New Zealand that I remember was actually like quite idyllic because at this dog (laughs) obedience club, pretty much all the other adults in the committee were... Like single woman who had chosen dogs over husbands and babies. So (laughs) it was um, quite a lot of... I think that in hindsight, I think that was such a great thing for me to have so many models of adulthood that were different to, you know, for, for women to... Um, just, you know, settling down and making babies. Um, and we would spend our weekends and I'd spend lots of hours like after school at the like the clubhouse um, with dogs and like going in the mountains in New Zealand for walks and like along beaches with the dogs. It was like, it was really great. I don't know why, but when I'm imagining this, I'm not
0: imagining you wearing shoes. <laughs> I'm just picturing, like, this idyllic world where there's no bindis or anything. And you've just got... Yeah, there were no bindis. And, yeah. There's no bindis in New
1: Zealand. It's no. crazy. It's so... Oh, yeah. When I came over here, I was like, what the hell is this yeah. crap? There's so many things that can happen. Yeah, and then you've you you you've got barefoot. You get a bindy in you and then you, like, go and try and, like, walk on the pavement and then it's sizzling hot there. It's just like, why?
0: You I can't walk with win. no shoes You can't anywhere. win. Your dad made the wrong <laughs> choice coming over here.
1: <laughs> did he come back and visit you in New Zealand? Yeah, he did quite a bit. Um, and yeah, there was one particular visit which definitely stands out. Um, he took us to a restaurant and, you know, I was sitting there with like this traffic light drink blowing bubbles into it and then i just remember suddenly my mom just like screaming and crying and i was like whoa i've never seen her like that before she's usually like pretty chill um and then like i later pieced together that what had happened was that was my dad telling my mom that he had lost the house that they that we were living in the value of that in a game of cards and he was telling her that he'd have to sell it. Um, and so that was pretty big. Like, initially, we he was like, you know, just come to Australia and, like, you know, I'll look after you guys. And we tried that for a few months and my mum hated it. Bindi's. <laughs> um, hate, the, the heat. Worst. Like, yeah. it was mostly the heat. Um, I think also I would guess, like, being away from family and friends, like, it was not really her choice what she'd wanted um and so she gave up and we went back to New Zealand just you and your mom yeah just me and my mom and our dog um (laughs) and we yeah we were like it took me a really long time to understand this but um we were effectively homeless We didn't have to sleep on the streets. We um, weren't in shelters, so we were fortunate in that sense, but we had no fixed address and we were couch surfing. Um, So we stayed in like a lot of different places. A lot of the time it was like friends and family. Um, At one point, like my mom got a job uh, working at a cattery and it was like this place in the middle of the woods and... There was like a shed on the property somewhere and we were just like the two of us living with our dog in (laughs) this like little shed and that place kind of freaked me out a little bit because it was just like so dark at night and there was no bathroom in the like shed so we'd have to walk through the woods to get to the like cattery to use the toilet there. It was just like a bit freaky. But yeah, mostly it was pretty good. Like I remember I think the last place we stayed at was a friend of my mum's from the dog obedience club. And they were a breeder and they bred golden retrievers. And like while we were staying there, um, her, her dog was pregnant and gave birth to puppies. And I just remember like coming home from school and like lying down on the floor and like all these golden retriever puppies fighting each other to like lick my face. It was like that snow angel kind of like (laughs) shape, but with puppies instead of snow. And it was just like, it was
0: glorious. (laughs) Um, young Breeze got no shoes on and is just (laughs) covered in dog fur at all times and cat fur as well (laughs) what eventually brought you back to
1: Sydney um I think my mum just like it got it must have been really tough for her like she did really well when we were in New Zealand to like I think keep any struggle she had from me like because I I still even though we were you know had no fixed address that would have been really tough for her but it, I didn't really feel the impacts of that. It just kind of felt like this fun adventure. But it must have just gotten a little bit too hard. And so she ended up coming back to Australia and bringing me and the dog with her. And then that's when we settled over here. And I was like about, I was a month shy of turning nine.
0: How did things go the second time around?
1: Good for me. I really came out of my shell. The first day at school in in Australia, the two like popular girls in my year were having a fight, and then they decided to fight over me to like who would like <laughs> who could be like best friends with the new girl with that has the funny accent. And so like that just set me up like really well because everyone wanted to be my friend and everyone knew who I was. Um, I don't think much has changed since then. <laughs> Bray. And so you were settled in Western Sydney, weren't you? Yeah, so the Fairfield area. At first, we were in um, a suburb called Smithfield. And we were there for, I'd say, like, it would have been four years. Um, And so I left, like, I finished my primary school years there, started first bit of high school in that place. And, like, it was quite different, I think, because, like, my mum didn't have the support that she did over in New Zealand. My dad had moved out like pretty much straight away when we moved in. It was pretty tough financially. We were like, mum was on welfare, and dad would just kind of like show up randomly and help out when we were like begging for money. Um, and there was just like, it was just this ritual where like every fortnight there'd be something that I'd need money for because I'm a kid and kids need money it's like you know there's a school excursion mom like you know can can I go and she'd just like go okay bring me my purse and I'd go get a purse and bring it to her and she'd open it up in front of me and she'd like empty it and you know there'd just be like a $10 note and she'd just say like this is all the money I have in the world until next Thursday and she's like I don't know what to do and that was just, like, every fortnight, like, the same conversation. So, like, we were struggling a lot with money at that time. Um, and every time I came home from school, i checked the letterbox on the way in. And if there was, like, uh, a letter from Star Real Estate or from Centrelink, I knew my mom was going to freak out because um, it was never good news. It was always, like you know, the rent's going up or you haven't paid your rent or um, we're going to cut your Centrelink payments for no reason because we're Centrelink and there's some administrative error but you're the one who's going to cop that. And so whenever I'd bring those letters to my mum, she'd just like start freaking out and she'd just like put them on the bench and she'd be like, I can't open them right now, like I can't open them. And so every time I'd walk past them on the bench, I'd freak out because I'm like, I don't know what this is but it means bad things. And then one day I came home from school and the house was just empty and I saw a note on the door with in my dad's handwriting I hadn't seen him in like like months and I walked around the house and I'm like yeah it's it's all empty except for my room which is a pigsty um, and like the note from my dad it said oh you're moving to Blacktown Um, there's garbage bags on the kitchen bench, like grab them, shove what you can of your stuff into them. We'll come back for you later. I was like, okay, (laughs) like did that. And then they still weren't there. So I was like, "Uh, okay. And I just sat down on our completely empty lounge room floor, um, and did my English homework and waited until they came. And what had happened was like, we finally got evicted from that house. Yeah. And that was the first of many moves where it was always like last minute garbage bags, grab what you can. The move to Blacktown was like, it was an emergency thing. And so like I got told like, this is just temporary. And so we, you know, I kept going to school in Fairfield. I'd get up at like, you know, the crack of dawn and get like a bus, a train, another train, another bus to get to school. Um, Or my mum would drive me if I was running late or whatever um and so yeah our lives was still very much back in Fairfield.
0: Well let's soundtrack those drives that you did with your (laughs) mum. What's the first song you've chosen today?
1: (laughs) Okay so um it's Last Night by The Strokes because this was like this happened um basically at the same time that The Strokes this song came out and my mum like her station of choice was Triple J. And so that was Triple J was always playing in the car, like when we were commuting back and forth. And because my, because it was like the station that my mom liked listening to, I just thought it was a radio station for old people. <laughs> <laughs> and then just like I just thought everything on it was lame old people music. And then I remember like one particular drive like and this song is being like rinsed and so like I'd heard it a million times but there's just one drive where it like really clicked and I you know felt my leg like bopping along to the music and I was like oh no like <laughs> I like old people music like this is mom music I'm not supposed to like this what's <laughs> happening to me why do I like rock and roll? <laughs> Yes, that's
0: why I picked this song. Okay. We've got an old spinster here on FBI radio today, and we're playing a song for her right now. It's The Strokes, It's Last Night. last night by The Strokes on FBI Radio 94.5 a selection by my guest on Out of the Box the soon to be former executive producer of the show Bree Jones What was the future looking like for you when you finished high school
1: I guess uncertain like most <laughs> people um I at the time like really wanted to be an actor that was my dream but I also just wanted to get the hell out of where I'd grown up because there would just been like so much crap that had happened and I wanted to get away from it and go somewhere new where I didn't know people and I knew nothing about the place. And so I, even though I got accepted into like an acting, um, like a drama degree, um, it was at like Western Sydney Uni in Penrith and I was like, oh, that's even further west than, you know, where I am now and I want to get away from from Not because, like, of anything specific to the West, just my particular history there. Um, and then I also – but I prioritised, like, a different uni and got accepted into that, which was Macquarie. So, yeah, that's where I ended up.
0: Most people are pretty well done with growth spurts by the time <laughs> they're at uni. But you're in first year and your doctor's telling you that the pain that you're experiencing in your knees – his growing pain. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I had like a little while where I was getting these like pains in my knees. And yeah, as you said, they were like, I went to the doctor. They're like, yeah, they're growing pains. I was like, oh, sick. Like, cause I'm quite short. I was like, cool. I, I guess I'm going to grow a bit. Maybe, maybe I can be like an actor slash model or something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's still hope. But, yeah, a little while later, like another pain started in my wrist. And I was like, oh what
0: the hell is this?
1: And my I thought, wrist
0: is growing as well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why is it growing in like different limbs and different yeah. extremities <laughs> at different times? Um, yeah, but it it started worsening. Yeah, all these different pains and my GP was just like useless. He wasn't doing anything about it, just sending me away. And eventually like I went and saw a different doctor and he's like, okay, let's run a bunch of tests. And then there was about three days when I was waiting for the results where it the pain and the swelling got so bad that I I couldn't walk. And at the time we were living in, um, basically in Cabramatta at the top of like a three story apartment building with, you know, no lift or anything. It was just like really run down. I didn't have a bed. I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and like I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. the pain was so bad. Like I couldn't think, I couldn't have thoughts because this pain was just so excruciating. I couldn't walk. My mum would come in in the morning and try and like lift me up and she has arthritis. so She was struggling. She was trying to like lift me up and get me out of bed and stuff. It was just, and she'd go to work and then I'd just be like at home all day screaming and crying in pain for like three days straight. And I was terrified. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know. I was like, is this just my life now? Like, what what is this
0: how old were you when this was happening 18 18 and did it take very long to get a diagnosis for it
1: um it felt like from the first sign of symptoms like yeah um but like once i actually saw that doctor it kind of got it got rushed it was probably like a week or two weeks or something yeah and then i got diagnosed with basically arthritis so it's called seronegative arthritis. And the full diagnosis I have now is like psoriatic arthritis because I also get psoriasis on my skin, which is just a nice little extra thing on the top. A little,
0: little <laughs> <sprinkle>. <laughs> How often do 18 year olds get diagnosed with
1: arthritis? Do you know? I wouldn't say that often.
0: <laughs> um,
1: does it often come on that quickly? No. Okay. So like, I guess more broadly, like juvenile arthritis, like young people getting arthritis, like it is... It's it's probably more common than people think or realise. Um, like I know one other volunteer here at FBI who also has it. And what it is, is it's like your immune system is attacking the cells in your cartilage because like your immune system thinks it's helping. It's like, oh, these are bad guys, these cells. I'm going to eat them and help you. But like the cells are actually completely fine. Um, and the the thing about it that is concerning is particularly when you're young is that the cells in your cartilage don't grow back. So, like, once they're gone, they're gone. And, like, with large joints like knees and hips and stuff, you can get replacements if that's all completely gone. But with all the small joints in your, like, toes and fingers and stuff like that, they you can't really do anything about them currently, I don't think. So, yeah, it's always in the back of my mind. Whenever I have a flare-up, I'm like, oh, God. Ooh. That's the cartilage getting eaten. <laughs> yeah, and it's not coming back. How um, do you treat that? Well, at this point in time, like, when I saw the specialist, she initially put me, put me on, like, a regimen of all sorts of medications. Um, and initially she told me, like, okay, this one, which was a steroid, and that was the main one. that, And she told me, like you know, you take this really high dosage of this for the first week and then we'll taper it down in the second week and by the end of the second week the other drugs will take over, like we'll manage that um, big flare-up you have right now and then you'll be able to walk again and then everything will go down and these other drugs will maintain it more long-term. Yeah, so I was like, okay, cool, and it just never settled to a point where that would happen with me. Just because my my particular arthritis is just really aggressive. And so I was on that steroid for two years, like a high dosage of it for two years. And were you still doing uni as well? Yeah, yeah. So like because I'd grown up on welfare and I tried to get jobs and I just really struggled to get one. Um, I was just like being on Centrelink and being a student on Centrelink is the only way I know to have like guaranteed money. So I was scared of taking time off from uni and not having that money. So I just like persevered and just kept doing my assignments. And in those days, (laughs) in those days, you'd have to physically go into uni and like submit the like paper version of the assignment as well which was brutal when I was living in Fairfield still and trying to get to North Ride. Ugh. did you have any extra support from the university I just had some
0: extensions yeah. and that was about it yeah one of the guests we've had on out of the box Bianca Willoughby had a invisible disability and we were talking about when you cross over that line from being sick to having a disability and disability is something that is with you forever and then starting to identify with that and you almost have to come out in a way and tell people hey I'm a person with a disability now what was that experience like for you?
1: It took a long time for me to see it in that way as well it was like when, when I was doing my honours degree Or maybe even when I'd started PhD. I'm a dropout, by the way. I don't have a PhD. I'm quite proud of that. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, when I had my supervisor, there was, like, I was trying to get some extent, like, take some leave or, or something like that or get some extra time on the thing that I was working on. And the university was actually, like, really shit about it. And they rejected stuff. And my supervisor got really shitty. And she was like, this is discrimination. You have a disability. This is what you... These are your access needs. Like, you need more time to complete these tasks because of these things you've got going on. Um, and, And this is discrimination. And that was the first time, like, having someone else tell me and phrase it in that way was the first time, like, the cold started turning. And I started to understand... Like, yeah, it set me off on a journey to understand, like, what invisible disability is and, yeah, to start identifying in that way.
0: So you had a little bit of extra support from the university, not much. (laughs) Did you get any support from your friends?
1: Yes, I did. I definitely did. Um, But in those, like, three days where I was unable to walk, I, like, I was so scared. Like, I was reaching out to people um, and, like, to their credit, like, they they I, I probably didn't explain it very well. I was, like, really distressed and it was just messages, you know, there's no tone. Um, and they couldn't see me or, or you know, really understand what was going on and they were very young as well themselves. Um, but, yeah, like, I messaged all these people or my friends and I was like, you know, can you come round? <laughs> like... I can't walk and I'm scared. Um, and, yeah, nobody came. I was by myself.
0: I'm sorry that happened.
1: <laughs> That's really awful. Yeah. But you
0: reached out to some bands <laughs> as well. you got, you got to find love
1: somewhere. I'm so lost. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you reach out to, Oh, Bri? my God. I, okay, I was, like, just desperate. And for some reason, something in my brain was, like, you know, music like makes me feel connected to people and like I'm gonna like just message like spam all these bands that I really like on MySpace (laughs) um and like just tell them like my whole life story I don't know if I like copied and pasted it or just like wrote it over and over again but I I spammed a lot of bands and one band that (laughs) that wrote back to me was the yeah yeah yes (laughs) So... what did they write to you they wrote stay strong and then put a little x and then I printed it out and I put it on my wall <laughs> and I don't think it was even for like comfort I think it was just clout like yeah. <laughs> hey look at me the yeah, yeah like I'm in touch with the yeah yeah, yeah. and
0: <laughs> and there was a kiss on the end
1: I know a little
0: x <laughs> well let's honor the yeah yes yeah, right now on out of the box what song would you like to play Oh, Maps is my favourite. It's Maps by the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. You'll sing to Out of the Box with Bree Jones and me, Mia Hull. It was the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Maps on FBI Radio 94.5. Today, I am joined by the brains behind this show, Bree Jones. She's leaving me as executive producer, but before she's gone, we're rolling through the records from her life and all of the stories behind them. Along with the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, you were into a band called Scream Feeder, oh,
1: young Bree. Yes, I'm, oh, I still am. They're my favourite.
0: Did you see them live?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I um for my 18th birthday, the weekend that I turned of the like week that I turned 18, they were playing a show in Adelaide at like this little venue, and I was like, you know, everyone else is going to schoolies for their 18th or whatever, because this was like a, my birthday's in November, and I'm like, screw it, like I just finished school, I'm gonna go to Adelaide, I'm gonna go to Adelaide and see my favorite band play. <laughs>
0: And you went to see them in Brisbane as well.
1: Yes, I did.
0: Why was that show important to you?
1: It was an important moment in my life because I got to meet someone who I ended up falling madly in love with about a week later. (laughs) (laughs) Had you planned on meeting them there? Yeah, we had. Because so he was also like um, a really big screen feeder fan. And he, his name's Sylvain, and he, um, he's French. And so he had been a fan of this band for, like, many, many, many years. And he always had this dream to come to Australia and see them play. And so he finally... And we had become friends on MySpace through our fandom. Um, and, yeah, and then we finally got to, like, meet in person in Brisbane at this um, screen feeder show.
0: What happened after that Brisbane show?
1: Um, Well, yeah, I I was like, hey, if you want to, like, come see some Sydney, bits of Sydney, um, you can come and stay with me and my mum in Cabramatta (laughs) Um, and, like, crash on our couch. And he was like, okay. And so he came down to Sydney and he was staying with us and I was trying to – like, I was was delivering pizzas at the time for for work and so, like, I just showed him around, like, Liverpool (laughs) – Um, and, like, took on a pizza run, Um, which I'm sure, like, every tourist wants to do. It's pretty high on the list of priorities. (laughs) It's, like, Harbour Bridge, Circular (laughs)
0: Quay, Liverpool. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. (laughs) And so how, how does that turn into love? (laughs)
1: Well, like, I was trying to, like, take him out to the city and, like, go see some gigs. Um, And, like, I, you know, wanted to impress him and look cool. So I'd asked all my friends to come. But, like, they said they were going to come and they just, just, like, didn't show up. And it was just the two of us. And I was like, damn it. Like, (laughs) I want to look like I'm cool with this cool guy. (laughs) Um, But so I just got, like, very drunk. um, And he got pretty drunk. Um, and then he wasn't sleeping on the couch anymore. (laughs) Oh,
0: the beginning of your relationship with Sylvan was defined by a pretty big event in your life as well. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So like when I started falling for him, I was also, I was still studying. This was my second year of uni. So I was 19 and I was doing like a creative writing unit and I, had just heard about – like, casually heard about this thing called automatic writing where you just, like, write down all your thoughts and, like, you don't really think in any kind of structured way. You just write. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I'm going to, like, give that a try and maybe something will come out of it that I can use for an assignment for this unit I'm studying. And so, like, you know, I had all the brain chemicals firing off that happen when you fall in love with someone – um, and then I was just like writing, and it started to become a compulsion. Like I couldn't, I actually couldn't stop. And it got to the point where like we'd be lying in bed, and like I'd ha- like I'd just have to write. And so I'd write on my skin, or I'd write on his skin, or I'd write on like my posters on my wall. Or like I just like I actually could not stop.
0: What kind of stuff were you writing?
1: Oh God, like just drivel, like. <laughs> <laughs> like Genius, I can tell you that, um, and yeah, like it was just nonsense. And so, I that probably went on for like two, three days, and then I like I was just sleeping less and less, and eventually I couldn't sleep at all. Like all I could do was write, and eventually, like I, I understand now, I was detaching from reality, and I started hallucinating. And at the time, I did not know that that was happening. Like, the reality that I was experiencing was, like, I only knew that to be my reality. It wasn't like I'd taken an LSD pill and understood that I was tripping. Like, I was seeing stuff. I was hearing stuff. I was, like, feeling stuff. I could smell stuff. My All of my senses were completely engaged in this world that just was only existed in my mind. So there was a point where... I was lying in bed and there were just all these, like I was just like a rotting corpse, but I was still alive. And there were all these like maggots eating my skin and my flesh and outside, like the whole world was like on fire and, and it was just kind of, I just kept like dying and then starting having another life. Like I just lived all these different lives and I watched like everyone I love die like over and over again. And it was, it was really messed up. Yeah. And it, all that happened in the space of like twenty four hours.
0: What did Sylvan do? The poor bloody bastard!
1: <laughs> I swear <laughs> God, like he just tried to come to Australia for a holiday, and then he's like stuck in this bedroom with this like, you know, nineteen year old young woman who's like just freaking the hell out. Like, because some of the hallucinations, there were people like trying to harm me, and so I was like fighting them off in my head. But I was in the in reality, I was like punching him and kicking him and probably saying all sorts of horrible things to him. And he was like trying to call my mum who was at work and explain to her, and this is not his first language, like, you know, hey, like something's wrong with Bree. Like, um, I think you need to take her to hospital. And my mum just like did not real like it didn't click for her, like what was going on. And so um, she was like, oh, I, c- I can't just leave work. Like, like it's, you know, I can't, sorry. Um, and then, like, mum got home and saw me in that state and was like, oh, oh, I get it, okay. Um, and then she took me and Sylvan to emergency at Fairfield Hospital. Um, I got admitted and um, into emergency and they, they sedated me, basically.
0: Let's soundtrack that moment. Oh,
1: God, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's the next song you've chosen for today?
1: So, like, I'm lying on this hospital bed, and in my head, I like, I was dying. I was in hospital and dying, and I remember this clock, like, ticking, and it was like these were the last seconds of my life, and for some reason I just... I burst out into song. <laughs> yeah, I just started singing this song to this poor bloody guy, and, like, yeah, yeah, it's So Sorry by Feist.
0: You hey. FBI radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming online it was Sorry by Feist. Right now and out of the box I'm joined by Bree Jones. Just before we were talking about would you call it a psychotic episode? Yeah that's what I got diagnosed with. Yeah and yeah the experience resulted in a visit to Fairfield Hospital. How long did it take for you to get an explanation for that
1: event? 12 years.
0: 12 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it what, took 12 years. What,
0: what did those 12 years look like?
1: Uh, a lot happened. Um, initially, I, when I got discharged, they put me into a program at Liverpool Hospital as an outpatient um, called EPIP, and that was Early Psychotic Intervention Program. And so I was seeing a psychiatrist and a social worker there, like, fortnightly, and that was that was helpful being in that program, and then I had I had so much anxiety after that. Like before that, you know, I was the popular girl in school yeah. and like had loads of confidence, and then after that, it it shook me big time, and I just had no idea like who I was anymore because I'd really being sane had felt important to me, if that makes any kind of sense. And it had, it really challenged, yeah, my, my sense of self. And I just didn't know who I was anymore. And so like after that episode, when I woke up from the sedation, like I was lucid, like I was as lucid as I am right now. So it was highly acute. You know, I I kept like trying to understand, like, why did this thing happen? Like it was only like 24 hours where I was really out of it of my life, but I had no understanding and no, no, none of those doctors or anything. They're just like, it it was a psychotic episode. And they didn't have a reason for why it happened. No. Did they think it was just a one-off? I don't know. They were just like, you know, these are things you can do so that you know what to do if it ever happens again. That's like in the program, like that was the goal of the program was just to like monitor myself and And so it was effective in that way. But, like, the anxiety was just through the roof. And I had massive social anxiety as well. Does that anxiety come from the fear that it might just happen again? A little bit. But it was also just, like, Sylvan and I continued to um, be in a long-distance relationship. And we we did that for, like, seven years. So go us. Um, It can work. (laughs) Um, And, like... So we were like back and forth and I was spending a lot of time in a country where I didn't speak the language. I so desperate, like, you know, he was just such a lifeline to me. Like he was my main support and I just threw everything I had like into making that relationship work. And I, and that meant that I neglected a lot of other stuff. And like, I just really wanted things to work with us. And so I, yeah, like, when I was in France, like, I just so desperately wanted his friends to like me, but I couldn't communicate with them. And that in that context, like, my anxiety just was – I was just a mess. Like, you know, we'd be sitting around, like, um, having some drinks or something and, you know, people would be talking and I'd just be sitting there. I was like, I don't know how to be amongst people and not talk and not be able to understand what they're saying. And so I'd just have all these panic attacks and I'd just, like – go into the bathroom and cry and have little freak outs all the time yeah it wasn't it wasn't fun poor sylvan again like just putting up with my crap <laughs> like oh my god
0: throwing so much energy into one relationship would obviously impact your friendships and your relationships with other people and that is something i want to come back to in a few minutes time I want to talk about the end of that 12 year gap, though, before
1: getting diagnosed. How did you eventually arrive at a diagnosis? So, I'd had a second episode, and when Sylvan and I had broken up, I got very depressed and I saw a counselor at uni because um, it was free. And um, he, like, he just wasn't a really good fit for me. And he was like, look, I don't really know how I can help you like after a few months. And he was like, all right, I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist. And so I went to see a psychiatrist who was so expensive. And she um, was like, all right, I'm going to put you on some antidepressants. Here's a mid-strength one. Let's see how you go. Um, and those triggered a second episode. It was exactly the same thing again. And so we caught it a little bit earlier. It was actually like I was um, video chatting with Sylvan, and he noticed that I was very similar to what I was like in the days leading up to the other one. And he was like, are you high? (laughs) I was like, oh, I haven't taken any drugs, but like I do feel different. And I was like, oh, yeah, shit, it's happening again. And so like I reached out to lots of friends and made sure there was going to be people around because I live alone. Yeah, and then it it did escalate and I started early sort of signs of hallucinations and so went to RPA and they knocked me out again and transferred me to Concord Hospital and I woke up there again like lucid.
0: How often do people come out of those events lucid straight away?
1: Apparently not very often. Yeah, like I think it's apparently very uncommon. So at that hospital I was being like monitored for a few days. They kept me in. And there was a psychiatrist that I had to sort of see there. And on my last day, he was like, oh, what medications have they been giving you? Any antipsychotics or anything like that? And I was like, they haven't been giving me anything. Like, I've just been taking my arthritis medication. And his jaw dropped. He was like, what? I was like, yeah, they haven't given me anything. He's like, okay, well, this is the fastest recovery from a psychotic episode I've ever seen in my career. That's really good that you recovered quickly, but it's also really dangerous because it means you can, if you can get out of that that state that quickly, it means you can get into it very quick as well. And I was like, yeah, that that checks out. Like, that's what it's like for me. And then he just told me, like, uh, any antidepressant, like, the antidepressant clearly, like, triggered it for you because we stopped giving it to you and you're fine. So he just told me, like, any any antidepressant would be too much for you, even a low-strength one. And then he told me, like, the only thing we can really do would be ECT, which is electroconvulsion therapy where they, yeah, like give you little shocks to your brain. And that freaked me the hell out. And so I got discharged and the hospital thought they were discharging me into the care of the psychiatrist. But I canceled my appointment because I was like, well, it sounds like psychiatry can't help me either unless it's this really like quite extreme method so I spent a couple of years not having any real care. And it was actually, like, when I was discharged was when I um, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to try community. <laughs> and I, like, submitted my FBI volunteer application of the fact of being discharged from a, yeah, a psych ward. <laughs> But it's it, it's not – I definitely need professional help as well. But, yeah, eventually I ended up seeing a psychologist again and she's the one I see now and she's so freaking good at her job. And she was able to provide an
0: explanation for the episodes, wasn't she? She
1: did. And, I yeah, I asked her for that. Like I wanted to know, like, you know, if this thing, like, has a name because I wanted to be able to, like – explain to people why, like, sometimes I might need extra support or, like, need to take extra precautions with my mental health. Um, and so I got diagnosed with bipolar too. Was yeah. that
0: almost a relief to have that?
1: In some ways it was. Like, I thought it would be a relief because I'd asked for it, but it actually kind of sent me spiralling into, like, a really bad depressive episode, um, which I'm only just... Coming out of now, if I'm honest, yeah.
0: But this time round, you've had a little bit more support from your friends. Oh hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you foster strong relationships with your friends if you've been pouring so much time into Sylvan for all those years?
1: It took it took a really long time, um, and I just knew that I needed leaning on one person. Putting all your eggs in one basket is not is not a good way to to operate and it's it's not fair on that person to to put so much weight on them um and so I knew like I needed I needed to like invested like reinvest in my friendships and it just took a really long time um it meant being really forgiving if they you know can't read my mind with things and you know obviously their life experiences have been so different to mine so it's like a lot of you know if if they unable to support me in exactly the way that I need in any given moment like being trying to coach them through it a little bit and being like this is, this is what I need um for next time and I just have frick, like the most beautiful people around me honest to god like my bandmates are so incredible um and like people I've met here at FBI have been really really important to me um and helped me through some really rough patches
0: Let's honour your beautiful friends. Oh
1: hell yeah. <laughs> With the song What have you chosen to play for them? I really love I I love brightness. Um so this is a local artist. Um and this track Oblivion just like it it makes me it takes me out of my head and makes me think about what it must be like from their perspective to try and like look after my sorry ass, And <laughs> I just yeah, cuz it's not it's not easy and they do such an incredible job. I love my friends.
0: You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. This is Oblivion by Brightness. Brightness and Oblivion on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now on Out of the Box, I'm joined by the soon-to-be former executive producer of this show, Brie Jones. For the past hour, we've been talking about Brie's life and the songs that have meant something to her along the way. And there's been a lot of talk about the songs you listen to, Brie, but not much about the songs that you make. (laughs) You're a musician. (laughs) Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. I I started... I, okay, I don't like the word musician. You're an
0: artist. I, <laughs> that's even worse. You're a content creator.
1: <laughs> I, okay, I I think I, I feel most comfortable with the word songwriter I've worked out. Okay. Just because I'm very DIY. You know, if you give me an actual guitar, I don't know how to actually play a real guitar. I started out on a ukulele. And from there, I ended up moving to this, like, four-string tenor guitar where I could still, like, play the things that I'd learned, but it's a solid body electric, so it sounds, like, big and beefy and not, like, cutesy twee ukulele stuff. And everything I've learned has just been through songwriting. I never, like, looked up tutorials on, like, how to play, so, like, I'm not – I'm just not technically very skilled but I love writing songs. It just makes me so happy working on my music. So i got got um, one band, which is a five-piece called Library Siesta, um, and then I have another band, which is a two-piece called Brr. <laughs> and There's was, a story there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think my um, bandmate in that band, he mistyped my name or almost mistyped my name, Brie, as Brr, and I was like, cool that sounds like a good band name for us (laughs) (laughs) it was winter at the time it was cold I couldn't afford heating I was freezing my tits off I was like I relate to this (laughs) (laughs) and library siesta has
0: stuff in the works at the moment
1: oh yeah it's like I, I think this is such a huge reason for like helping me out of the like depressive episode I have been in it's like Things are starting to kick in. Um, We got a grant, which I never thought I would be a grant recipient. Yeah, we got a grant too, and we're recording an album, which we're starting tomorrow and Friday. We're heading into the studio with this, like, really great producer who's flying over from Perth, and it's just, like, such a dream because we've been writing this thing for, like, five years um, and now we're finally actually going to record it. Like, I just, I never thought that this would actually happen because money was just such a barrier. Um, but, yeah, we got a little grant. Yay. <laughs> and this is all unreleased music that you're putting together now. Yeah.
0: When will we be able to hear that? Oh, uh,
1: I don't know yet. I Like, the plan is, like, we're just going to record this, try a gig, a bit like get back into gigging for the second half of this year and then i think maybe beginning of next year we'll start putting out a few like singles off it and see where it takes us
0: where do you and library siesta normally practice
1: ah in my home my beautiful dilapidated flat above a shop where the there's no bathroom there's just like a dunny outside and the showers in the kitchen and like it's it's cool like there's quite a lot of space so it means that my bedroom has like we've set up a practice room in it and like I've got this really big beautiful spacious lounge room and so I like Tetris my flat into like lots of different Configurations. so like when bands are touring and they need somewhere to stay it's like it's a little hotel and then like when we're rehearsing it's like a rehearsal room and then like we make it into a studio when we're recording demos and like oh uh, my whole home in this flat is just centered around like making music and it just makes me so happy. And it's made you happy for quite a while as well. Yeah I've been there 11 years now. 11 years. Yeah. That's such a
0: huge contrast to the start of your life.
1: It's the longest well. I've ever called anywhere home and I love it so, so much. No, it's beautiful. And as someone who's
0: visited the house before, <laughs> it's, it's so evident that you've lived there for a while because everything has a spot. It's, it's <laughs> so set up and there's a little bucket under the spot where the water <laughs> drips out of the roof <laughs> and everything is so beautifully placed. And yeah, it's all tetrised around. That flat is in Redfern which is also home to this station where we're sitting today. What made you want to join FBI?
1: I just, like, I just wanted to be around like-minded people and, like, I just wanted community and I wanted support and I wanted, I wanted to give back. Like, I'd been a listener for a really long time and I loved the station and I loved this show. I was, like, a big fan of this show. And, yeah, I just really, I just wanted to get amongst it and it was just down the road. How
0: has your experience on Out of the Box been? What has it meant to you to be the producer of this show?
1: It's been, like, an honour. There's just been so many incredible stories and so many incredible people opening up and just... uh, The thing that, like, as a listener, it just makes me feel like it's just a good reminder of, like, you just never know what a person has been through. Like whenever I'm listening to out of the box, it just feels like, Oh, this could be the person that I'm sitting next to on the train. This could be anyone. And all it's just all these people with these like incredible stories and it producing this show has just been so good. Cause the, the other side of it is just, you get to throw yourself into somebody else's life and it just takes me, it helps take me out of my head. And forget about you know all my problems and I just lose myself in someone else's story when I'm working on an episode and it's just like like it just it's really helpful and yeah I'm gonna miss it <laughs> I'm gonna miss you Mia I'll miss you too <laughs> um
0: but you'll you'll still be around if I will kicking around the station yeah it behind will, the scenes yeah but <laughs> get back behind that curtain <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>
1: did, did you have any parting words? I'm really grateful to everyone that um, I've been working with on this show. All the people who've been in charge of programming have been really amazing. Um, you obviously, <laughs> you have been an absolute joy to work with and Joey who I started working with, he taught me so much about what a producer does and um, all the other producers on the team. like It's it's, yeah, and obviously all the guests, like all the guests we've come through, like, yeah, I, I'm i just really grateful. Well, I've been really grateful to have you as a producer. I only started
0: hosting this show this year and before it, I'd never done an interview on the radio before. So it's been a huge adjustment and... I feel like, um, do you know that episode of The Simpsons where that caterpillar drops in the backyard and it's just constantly screaming? Oh, yes. And then, yeah, and they, they, say, they say about the caterpillar, like, it needs constant reassurance or it will die. <laughs> and it's constantly screaming, and I really relate to that in, in my experience as the host of Out of the Box. And so thank you for constantly reassuring me. It's been a real joy. <laughs> having you as the producer, and I'm really going to miss you, Brie. Oh,
1: you're my favourite Screaming Caterpillar. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you for being a guest on the show today, Brie. What a special episode Thank that we got to Thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> what song would you like to end on? Okay, so it's The Desks. Um, it's called Home is Where the Home Studio Is, um, and it came out on an FBI compilation, like, well over 10 years ago, that Lee Tran Lam put together. Um, She hosts Local Fidelity on uh, Sundays. And, um, yeah, this track just, like, makes me think about my home, my beautiful Redfin home and all my friends. And uh, it just brings me so much joy when I listen to this.
0: It's The Desks on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Home is where the home studio is. Big shout out to producer Danny for helping research this episode. And if you'd like to listen back, you can do so on the program's page on fbiradio.com or stream the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. See you, Brie. Bye.
1: Please clear it sound.